Luke 7. We'll start at 36 to 39, and then we'll jump over to 44 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you, Mel. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Kristen. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm on the teaching team here, and I am um, thrilled to be able to speak to you this morning um, in our series that we're studying together, which is Here's What We See. So it's Brandon and the team laid out a vision for us for the next five years, and this month we've been covering uh, these different values that we are hoping are going to shape our community in the next five years. So the first week, Brandon talked about a place called home and where we might be physically in the next five years. Last week, he then talked to us about uh, being defined as a community of invitation, that we might embrace the opportunity we have to share the good news of Jesus with those who are in our sphere of influence. And this week, I'm tasked with talking to you about the value of renewed spiritual vitality, the hope that we have that we would be a community defined by a particular kind of spiritual vitality. Now, when I think of the word vitality, I think of this church, Wednesday nights here in the building. And if any of you have ever been here on a Wednesday night, you know of what I am speaking, junior youth. If you duck your head into the gym before or after their Bible study time, it is the perfect picture of vitality. Young hearts, minds, bodies, laughing. We have some of the junior youth up here. They can speak to it, laughing um, playing, it's noisy, it's loud, it is vital. It is a physically vital space. Well, while it might be uh, easier for us to imagine physical vitality, it may be harder for us to imagine spiritual vitality. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines vitality as a state of being strong and active, having energy. And so what does it look like for us in our spiritual walks to be strong and active and to have energy? 
Well, at the beginning of this month, Brandon read for us a vision statement that he had actually written last year uh, where he had, in his mind, did a time hop. He fast-forwarded five years, pretended that he was in 2025 and looking back over the last five years. And this is what he wrote in terms of how he saw the fruits of spiritual vitality uh, playing out in our community. And he, he said this, Spiritual formation has really taken root in our community as a whole, and not only with those who are new to faith. Five years ago, we started work on an idea that would help people understand what it looked like to grow in faith as a member of Elevation. And then we invited everyone into a season of reflection and to really pursuing God together. People started getting really honest about where they were on the journey and began making the kinds of investments that have led to some serious health and growth. We're hearing reports about everything from your financial well-being to your marriages to the relationships in your lives where you've been struggling with reconciliation. We're hearing stories of real deep transformation. I'm not sure we've ever had a season of spiritual vitality like this at Elevation. It's just incredible. So this is the fruits of spiritual vitality that Brandon and our pastoral team um, are envisioning for us in the next five years. And when I was preparing for this sermon and getting ready to talk to you about it today, I reached out to Brandon and Melissa and Helen, and, and I asked them, so, so what's your definition of spiritual vitality for us as Elevation? And each one of them came back to the central core fact that spiritual vitality for us would be defined as Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of our lives, and Jesus at the center of our community. And I liked especially um, how Brandon wrote it to me. He said, I imagine a community of people who do not consider spirituality or faith or Christianity as one part of their lives, even an important part, but as the material that holds all of life together. Which reminds me of a line that a friend mentor used when he spoke at the embassy years ago. A life of faith is all of me, with all of God, in all of life. That is spiritual vitality. So church, if you've been a part of Elevation for any amount of time, you'll know that one of our defining features is a journey mentality, that we believe we are on a journey together. So if we are on a journey towards spiritual vitality for the next five years, I want to reassure you that our church and our pastoral team are going to provide us the kinds of resources that are going to help us grow in our spiritual walks. Um, so, for example, if someone admits that they rarely read the Bible, then here at the church, they'll provide simple resources to help you dig in without getting overwhelmed. Um, maybe if you're struggling with a relationship with others or with anger at a parent or jealousy in a marriage, then our church community is going to come alongside you and establish a mentoring relationship. Um, or there may be groups in similar stages of life that will come and help sharpen one another. We're going to have more retreats, Bible studies, book studies, ways to help us grow in our spiritual vitality. But today, what I want to talk to you about with spiritual vitality is that if we're beginning a journey together as a community, then today, on this Sunday, I want to start at the trailhead of the journey. I want to begin with who is this Jesus that we're going to make a cent the center of our lives? So if the definition for us of spiritual vitality is Jesus in the center, then who is this Jesus that we're going to make the center of our lives over the next five years, and how do we do that? 
And so I want to meet Jesus through the story of the sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet that Mel read for us today. So the story begins with Jesus being invited into the home of a Pharisee. And we can tell from the scripture, from the references, that this was quite a fancy banquet. And we know that because it says they were reclining at the table. And in Jesus' day, if it was a more casual dinner, they would have been sitting with their family. But the fact that they're reclining tells us that this is a fancy dinner, that the Pharisee is throwing in order to honor the person of Jesus. And it might be hard for us to sort of imagine reclining at the table. So I have a picture for us here. Um, this is how they would have been doing it. They would have, the table would have been quite low, and they would have cushions next to it. They would recline on their left side, and then they would eat with their right hand. They would angle their bodies away from the table and kind of hook their feet behind them, which will help us start to better picture how this woman comes up behind Jesus and begins to anoint his feet. So while he's there eating and, and being honored by this Pharisee, the Bible tells us that a woman in town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came. And this is the first thing we learn about Jesus from this story. It's that Jesus draws sinners to himself. The presence of Jesus draws sinners to himself. So what does it mean that this woman was a sinner? Because she gets called a sinner quite a, you know, a handful of times. Well, it could have been that she was a liar, a thief. She could have been an adulteress. It could have simply been that her husband was immoral, that she was married to someone who was considered immoral. Tradition has taught that this woman was a prostitute, but to be honest, it's not explicitly clear in the scriptures. What we do know simply is that she was called a sinner, and then for that reason, she would have been viewed as less worthy, less lovable. She would have been considered clean, unclean or dirty. It wasn't actually a problem that she was in the room because as it was the custom in that day and age, when you would throw a fancy banquet like this, you would leave the doors open so that poor people could come in and hear the conversation and eat the scraps from the table. No, the problem wasn't that she was in the room. The problem was that she insisted on touching Jesus and touching him in an incredibly undignified way. She was touching his feet and crying. And, and the Greek word here um, is the word for rain showers. And so the Bible says she was cleaning his feet with her tears. Now, any of us who've cried, I don't know how, I mean, how many of us cry in such a way that our tears come out like a spigot and fall on something. I mean, for her, for her tears to be cleaning Jesus' feet means that her face was right up against his feet so that her tears were mingling from her cheek to his feet. And then when she didn't have a towel to dry his feet, she took her hair down and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then she took a very expensive bottle of perfume and she broke it and poured it over Jesus' feet. This was undignified. Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. He was clean. He was righteous. And for her to touch him was to make him unclean. Simon the Pharisee would have never let this woman touch him. He was at the top of the social order. He was educated, he was a religious leader, he was economically uh, influential, politically influential. He would have never let this woman touch him. And so it makes him question Jesus' authority. And he thinks to himself, you know, if Jesus was a really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him and he wouldn't let this happen. 
Friends, not only did Jesus know what kind of woman was touching him, he welcomed her. He called her. His presence drew her. Everything about him, his teaching, his demeanor, his love said to her, come, don't wait. Come as you are. Come and be with me. She was not going to let anything keep her from him. No social norms, no hierarchies. Once she had heard Jesus speak, once she had seen him, she was drawn to him. And Jesus calls us too. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning writes about this story. And he writes this about this moment in the scripture. That Jesus is saying to this woman and to us, come to me. Come now. Don't wait until you get your act cleaned up or your head on straight. Don't delay until you rescue your reputation. Until you're free of pride and lust, of jealousy and self-hatred. Come to me now in your brokenness and sinfulness. Come now with all your fears and insecurities. Friends, Jesus draws sinners to him. He draws us to him. So in the next part of the story, Jesus turns the table. Because as Simon the Pharisee is judging Jesus and looking down on this woman, Jesus suddenly flips things around. And he says, to, he says to Simon the Pharisee, he says, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't even offer me the courtesy of washing my feet. But this woman is washing my feet with her tears. He says, when you brought me into your home, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing me since I've arrived. And when I came into your home, you didn't anoint my head, but this woman has poured perfume on me. And what's so radical about this is, as I said, Simon the Pharisee was at the top end of the hierarchy. He was powerful. He was considered righteous and clean. And Jesus has the audacity to say that this woman who is a sinner, who is the lowest of the low, because even if she wasn't a sinner, she was still a woman, and women did not have value in that day. They were little more than property. He's saying this woman has behaved better than you. This was offensive so here's the second thing we learn about Jesus from this story, is that Jesus reverses the power systems of this world, and he reverses the power systems of our heart. Jesus calls the Pharisee out. He lays the Pharisee low, and he elevates the woman above Simon. And while we may sit back and cheer at how Jesus does this, we're like, yes, right on Jesus. We need to be careful. Because Jesus also has a tendency to disrupt the power systems of our own heart. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 25, If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. I think what's really interesting about this story is that we are, in this moment, both the sinful woman and the Pharisee. We are both held captive by our thoughts and desires and motivations and fears in such a way that they control us. They make us feel ashamed, guilty, unworthy, unlovable, and forever separated from the presence of God. But we're also Simon, the Pharisee. We also reach for comfort, power, wealth, significance, rightness, privilege, because we hope that somehow it will make us worthy and acceptable. 
But when we meet Jesus, he asks us, are you willing to put that down? Are you willing to die to your privilege? Are you willing to die to your comfort, your power, your rightness, your significance, your wealth? Are you willing to lose all that for me? Now, let me make no bones about it. This isn't fun. It doesn't feel good. And I wish in some ways that I didn't have to preach to you about it today. And yet, and yet, it is the truth that leads to peace. There's a story in the Chronicles of Narnia about a boy named Eustace Scrub. He's the cousin, and he is as miserable as his name sounds. He's the cousin of Lucy and Edmund, and against his will, he gets sucked into the adventures in Narnia, and he hates it. He is a pain in the butt. He's whiny, he's rude, he's a brat. And one day, the ship lands on an island, and in order to get out of work, Eustace sneaks off, uh, and he stumbles across a dragon's cave. And at first, he's terrified, but then he realizes the dragon is dying, so he hides and he waits until the dragon dies. And once the dragon dies, it begins to rain very, very hard, and so he's forced to, to go and take um, cover in the cave. And when he gets in the cave, he discovers mounds and mounds of gold, and he's thrilled. Uh, Lewis says he has greedy and dragonish thoughts, and he begins to scoop the riches into his pockets, and he finds this gold bracelet, and he shoves it up his arm. And then because it's raining outside and because he had such a big fright, he suddenly gets very tired and he falls asleep. When he wakes up, Eustace discovers that he has turned into, as you can guess, a dragon. Eustace as a dragon actually turns out to be much more likable than Eustace the boy because he's miserable as a dragon and he's suddenly so sorry for all the terrible ways he's behaved and he begins to help the Narnian crew to repair the ship, find food. He even uses his fiery breath to help keep them warm and start fires on the beach. But soon they face a dilemma because they realize it's time to set sail again, but they can't take the dragon with them. So they're not sure what to do. So the night before they leave, Eustace falls asleep on the beach, um, but he's woken by a lion saying, follow me. And Eustace is terrified by the lion, even though he knows he could eat the lion in one swoop. There's something about this particular lion that just cuts straight to his heart. And so he follows Aslan to the pool, where Aslan tells him to get undressed and get into the pool. Now Eustace knows that the lion is asking him to take off his dragon skin. And so he starts to scratch at himself, and he does. He manages to pull his dragon skin off like he peels a banana, and he drops it beside him. But then he looks down and realizes he's still a dragon. So he does this three more times, and every time he gets his skin off of him, he looks down, and he's still a dragon. And he starts to despair that he will ever be changed and be healed back to a boy again. Finally, Aslan looks at him and says, you know, you'll have to let me undress you. And that's when Aslan sinks his claws into Eustace the dragon so deep. It's a pain so terrible. Eustace is sure he can't bear it until suddenly Aslan pulls the skin off of him and throws him into the pool, and he comes up a boy again. In this story, Aslan is Jesus. And we are used to struggling with the dragon skin of our hearts. Jesus calls us to follow him, but first we have to undress. We have to get rid of the dragon skin on our hearts. We must put down the power systems 
that guide our lives. This can be terribly painful and difficult. C.S. Lewis writes, it's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. Jesus is a living man, still as much a human as you and still as much God as he was the day he created the world. Really coming in and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. Friends, Jesus reverses the power systems of our heart, and if we truly understand what that means, then we know it means that we have to be willing to die to our own way. And if we're going to have any amount of spiritual vitality, it will not come from us, but from the power of Jesus in our lives, which leads us to our next point. After Jesus has laid the Pharisee low and elevated the woman, he turns to the woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the moment he says that out loud, that the woman's sins are forgiven, he scandalizes the room. All the air sucks out of the room. Why? Because that's heresy. Because only God can forgive sins. And when they look at Jesus, they just think he's a man. Who is this man that says he has the authority to forgive sins? And this is the third thing we learn from this story about Jesus, that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Here's the great mystery of our faith. We believe that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. As C.S. Lewis wrote, as we just read, Jesus is a living man, still as much a human as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world. And this can be hard for us to reconcile our minds around. This is a uniquely Christian tenet of our faith. There are many faiths that believe in Jesus, but they say he was a good man, a good prophet, a good teacher. We say, yes, he was all of those things, and he was also fully God. It's something that we uh, may never really fully be able to understand until we get to heaven. And I, I was reminded this week as I was thinking about this of a friend I had made in undergrad who was a Christian ministries major. And he came up with this amazing analogy, this amazing sort of picture uh, metaphor for things like this in our faith that may be hard for us to reconcile our minds around but are still true. And he used the image of a rainbow. And he said, you know, sometimes we can see either end of the rainbow, but we can't see the middle of the rainbow because it's covered by the clouds. And so on one end of the rainbow, we have the truth that, God is, that Jesus is fully man. And on the other end of the rainbow, we have the truth that Jesus is fully God. And it's the same rainbow, but the middle is covered by the clouds. And it may be something that we may never be able to see fully until we are um, in heaven. But for now, we take it on faith. That is to say that we choose to believe that Jesus has the power to forgive our sins and make our hearts right with God. And it's this faith that Jesus saw in the woman because he turns to her and he says, your faith has saved you, now go in peace. And this is the final thing we learn about Jesus from this story, is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. My um, mom grew up in the mountains of Kentucky, and my grandmother spent her whole life being a farmer's wife in the mountains of Kentucky, and she had these wonderful folksy sayings about faith in Jesus, and one of them was, um, Satan is the master of confusion, but Jesus is the prince of peace. Have you all heard this before? Satan is the master of confusion, but Jesus is the prince of peace. When we come to Jesus as we are, when we allow him to disrupt the power systems of our heart, when we believe in faith that he has the power to forgive us, 
then we are flooded with peace. St. Augustine wrote, Lord, you, gave, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I learned a big word. Um, I'm also a, a PhD student, and I've had to read some big academic texts in the last couple of years. And last year, this word kept coming up over and over again. I was like, I don't know what this word means. And it was the word imbricated. Imbricated. Now, you may know what it means. I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up. And it means to have petals, tiles, or scales that overlap one another and are connected. And it's like this pine cone. All the woody scales are overlapped and connected to one another. And as I thought about this final point, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, I was reminded that our hearts are made to be imbricated with the presence of Jesus. And yet, because of sin in the world, we have gotten torn apart from him. But the story teaches us today that Jesus calls us back to him, just as we are, to come and make peace with him. And it's when we're living in that peace that spiritual vitality can really begin. So the band is going to play a song for us as we finish today. And I invite you to spend the time in prayer and reflection uh, maybe holding your hands open in your lap, holding your heart out to the Lord, and asking him to come and speak to you about things in your life that may be holding power over you when he alone should have that power. Are you willing to let those things go and put them down? Are you willing to let him um, forgive you and bring peace to your life? Because that kind of peace passes understanding and it's that peace that is the root, um, is the trailhead, the beginning of our journey towards spiritual vitality. So I invite you to pray um, and meditate as the band sings. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are the kind of being that draws sinners to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you um, call us to you. And that you offer us a way to radically reorient our lives so that we can be filled with your peace that passes understanding. So, Father, I pray for each one of us in this room today as we go out this week and as we go on this journey together as a community toward spiritual vitality over the next five years. That we would remember that if there is any vitality in us at all, it's not of our own doing. It's because of you and your power in our life, Lord. I pray this week that each person in this room would feel a special touch from you this week as they go through their journeys, through their days. They would know your presence in a new way, in a dear way. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to join us in the gym. We have some discussion questions. We have coffee, pour-over coffee. We have snacks that the kids will devour as soon as they're released from their rooms. So go, go uh, fellowship with one another. If you would like prayer, um, you're welcome to come up here and have prayer.